So we have seen God create this world and everything that is in it. We have seen God's people, the ones he called out, unable to keep the promises that uh, they had even themselves made. And you see again God's faithfulness of going, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, because it seems like those God has called into relationship with him have a very difficult time doing the things that he has said. And so we get to a part this morning uh, where God, now we've seen Jesus come and we've seen Jesus commission his disciples and we get to a unique part of scripture in Acts chapter 2 where the church, um, which I would not say is God's reset, God's plan was still this, but the church now becomes the mechanism that God uses. And so we actually, our memory verse for this week is just the first part of that end of Acts chapter 2. We'll be at the beginning, really the bulk of the passage is Peter's Pentecost speech. But then at Acts 42 through, 2, 42 through 47 talks about how the church functioned. And so our memory verse goes like this. They, the new church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Like those are the habits of the early church. Now, what made the early church? You know, how, how did it become the church? Uh, because it's a unique moment for us. God's establishing something by his spirit. And so Acts chapter 2 becomes important. And in fact, a year ago, we were preaching the book of Acts. So we, we went through it. We didn't go all, we, we kind of powered through it, I think about 15 weeks and this passage was preached, I think, 53 Sundays ago. So like a year and a week ago, we did it. And I almost didn't preach this passage again, because I was like, well, you know, first of all, most of you probably didn't even know we did it. So it's okay. Our brains forget. Uh, but I thought, okay, now that we have gone through Scripture and we've seen the direction God is moving things, let's do the same passage. And let's see if we are a little more settled in what we're reading and in what we're seeing and in what we're hearing. So it's not the same outline. If you compare these, these two sermons together, they're not, they're not going to be the same other than uh, the passage is the same and how we're kinda, what we see is the same. But uh, now I think it's kind of for us kind of a, uh, you know, remember, remember you're in like gym class and you had to do like the president's physical fitness test and you get like a red patch or a blue patch and I got no patches because I could never really stretch that far on the machine. Um, this is a time for us to go, does this make more sense now? Do these elements make more sense now that we have seen week after week more of what God is doing and how he is establishing you know, what is to come, which is every uh, tribe, tongue, and language worshiping him. So we'll be in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41, and we're going to hear all of it this morning, and there is a lot, right? It's a 41 verses, a lot of verses, uh, but it's really broken down into the coming of the Spirit, Peter's speech, and a response. So there's really three big chunks of what's going on within this passage that we will hear. So Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, remember Jesus has now ascended. Okay, that's, that's, for, that's Acts 1.8, which was our memory verse last, uh, last week. That Jesus has said, you know, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus has said this is going to happen. Matthew 28, which was our great commission, the resurrection great commission from last week. Like we're seeing Jesus say, I'm going to send you out and I'm with you. He's saying these kind of things like, I'm not going to leave you. I'm with you. My power, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit does this. Well, Acts chapter 2 shows us how he plans to do that in the birth of the church. Verse 1. 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, remember we've lost, uh, we lost one and gained one in Acts chapter 1, so right, Judas is gone, new guy came, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, it's the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So now we're going back, Old Testament reading. <laughs> and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants in those days. I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Sounds like Ghostbusters. Uh, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's quoting Joel. Now men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says, concerning him, that would be King David, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand and I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption." You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He's going to give his interpretation of this psalm now. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Remember the Davidic covenant, we went through that. God gave a promise of a king. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37. Now when they, that would be the crowd, heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, which would include Gentiles at this point, right? All who are far off, everybody, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Pray with me. Father, you are continuing your work. And in our reading today, we hear and see that you sent the Spirit to fill your disciples to begin your church. So might you this morning open our eyes and our hearts to what is true. Father, I pray for myself that uh, I get out of the way and that you and your words, by the power of your Spirit, would come through clearly. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's a great passage this morning, but I want to start with just you thinking about your church life and church experience. Do you ever find yourselves in church life getting a little tired? Or when you feel like living the perfect Christian life is just really hard to do? Where you're just like, I can't. I can't do it. I can't do all the things that everyone tells me I need to do. I can't live like a good Christian. When I talk to my friends and I'm like, how's your you know, walk with the Lord doing? Which is such an abstract question, but you still ask it. And people are like, oh, you know, could be better. Uh, but all these feelings of like super Christians who seem to be able to do all kinds of crazy stuff for God. And then the rest of us who are all in this room. Yeah. That no matter how hard you try, you don't seem like you can actually measure up to what God wants for you, or what your pastors want for you, or what your parents want for you, or what your teachers want for you, or what your friends want for you, or what your community group leader wants from you. You're just like, I can't do this. I just can't do this. It's impossible for me to try and do all of these things. Right, Hans, you're giving me applications every Sunday. If you talk about two things, that's over 100 applications a year. Plus, whenever I'm reading, I'm trying to apply. So now I got like 300 applications that I'm trying to keep up with. And like, they're just like plates spinning. It's like, oh, I got to go do this. And I got to balance my budget. And I got to be nice. I got to smile at somebody. I got to go talk to somebody over here. And like, I just can't 
keep up with what is being demanded of me by the church. Well, we do have this thought. If I give a little more, or I serve a little more, or I smile a little more, and I am okay with smiling, that's all right, uh, then I will be loved a little more. But we at Genesis don't need to be uh, an exhausting church. We don't need to be an exhausting church. Um, and, I, and what I mean by that is not, there will be times when you get tired, right? And that's okay. Like, there's like a holy exhaustion. You ever felt it where, like, you just pour yourself out? At the end of the day, you are wiped, but you're just like, this was awesome, right? There's that. And then there's just, all I'm doing is spinning plates. That's all I'm doing. I'm just spinning plates for Jesus. I hope he likes it, right? I got one on my nose like a seal, and it's just spinning. At Genesis, you will find opportunities to get involved. And I hope and we hope that all who call this place their church home do get involved and use their gifts and that they serve. But we are only doing it appropriately in as much as we recognize that God has called us into what we are doing and recognize the power that he has given us to do so. So one of the greatest freedoms in the Christian life, walking with the Lord, is to realize that God is the one who brought you into something And God is the one who has supplied the power for you to do the things that he has asked for you to do. That this is all coming from him. That you don't have to break into it. You don't have to find like the right potion. You don't have to figure out the right steps or get just the right education. But that God is doing something continually. And all the things that he has said to his disciples, let's just think of last week's memory verse and the Great Commission, right? Those two things together are a doing, they're an active type of thing. But we also, with the Great Commission last week, had Jesus saying he'll be with us. We had in Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And so we now get to read about how God empowers, calls together, and creates his church to do the things that he is asking for them to do. But it's all happening by the power of God and not by the power of men and women. And so often, the way that we think about church life It's like, man, you know, God help us do cool things, right? So like we're going to apply a certain amount of effort to something and then we need God to fill in the gap. That's often how we think about it. Like we're going to work really hard and wherever we can't really ascend to the level that we need to, we're going to ask for the Lord to kind of fill in that gap so that we can get everything that needs to be done, which puts a lot of pressure on us. And if you read in Acts chapter 2, as the church is beginning, you will find that it is God who is working, it is God who is saving, it is God who is empowering, it is God who is doing all that he has said he was going to do, and as we have read all year, it's God going, I'm going to do it, 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 I'm going to do it. And this morning, the passage this morning is just one more example of God doing the things he said he would do. And Peter's speech on the day of Pentecost is an incredible moment in the creation of a new community and in the empowering of that community to bring the message to the ends of the earth. It's not just like their master planning did it. And there are still issues that show up even though they're empowered by the Spirit. We'll read those in the coming weeks. There's still things they misunderstand. There's things that they haven't developed. But when they are living in the power of the Spirit by what God has done, then we realize that, oh, this is, this is God the whole time. It's always. The best things that happen are from the Lord. 
the worst things that happen are from me. And there are multiple times, what we'll see in this passage, where it's God doing the work. So we'll start with just these first four verses. I really have this whole sermon as the birth of the church, but these first four verses give me the argument as to why that God is doing something new. So look at these first four verses. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. There we go. So unified together, Jesus said, go wait. So they're waiting. They're waiting 10 days because Jesus is with them 40 days. Day of Pentecost is 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. So, like, so you do your uh, math from uh, the book of Numbers and you realize like, Pentecost is 50 days basically from Passover to Feast of First Fruits. So counting out Sabbath. So Jesus is 40. Now the day of Pentecost there's a 10-day gap between when Jesus ascended and the Spirit coming. So the day of Pentecost is there. They're all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire, and God appearing as a fire is not an uncommon thing, is it? We've seen that before, that God, God will lead his people in the wilderness, so he's a cloud by day and a fire by night, and Moses in the burning bush. Like God as a fire is not an uncommon image for us to see. So now this thing appearing like fire are coming, and divided tongues rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, <clears throat> we already know the tongues that they're speaking from later in the passage are not just these random languages. Right, just that you've never heard before, but they're languages of the people who are about to hear what's going on. Okay, so for Acts chapter 2, the way in which they are proclaiming is that God is empowering them to preach the good news of God in languages that they did not know <clears throat> for a specific reason, which is to fulfill the, thing, fulfill the things that Jesus said. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we're not going to get into this a ton, but I do want to look at a few things that the Jewish festivals, <clears throat> excuse me, are tied to Jesus, all of them. But here are three. Passover. Remember that Jesus was crucified during Passover and Jesus is called our Passover lamb? So Passover is associated with Jesus and his sacrifice for us. When we were reading about the crucifixion of Jesus and we saw that none of his bones were broken, well, none of the bones of the Passover lamb are broken. The feast of first fruits, which comes... Immediately after that is when Jesus rose. And the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. That because Jesus rose, the first fruits was essentially going, because we see fruit now, we know that there will be more fruit to come. The harvest is coming. So we see that feast, and because of that feast, Jesus rising, Paul associates the, the rising of Jesus from the dead with the first fruits of our own resurrection. So he makes that connection. And now here we are at Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, the deposit of the Spirit. And there's interesting, and some people would say this, I haven't done enough of my digging to go, yeah, for sure, but it does make sense. Where um, in the Feast of Weeks, which is where we get to, one of the offerings is leavened bread. And leaven in the uh, New Testament, as we see it, is associated with sin. And there's different loaves coming, and they have leaven within them. And people say at times in reading that, they'll go, perhaps in this Pentecost telling, as we associate these images, there's always sin within the church. That's one thing they say. It's like, because it's imperfect, sin does exist within the church. But also, two loaves are presented, and there's the Jew and Gentile, right? That, that, that even this, God is establishing a new thing and providing a mechanism through Jesus and the establishing of people in his spirit of a new work 
And that work continues until his return. And it continues until his return because when he returns, he eradicates sin. But in the meantime, sin is still here. And so the Spirit is coming and establishing a new work and establishing a new people who are still God's people, but establishing a new work and a new people by God's power and by God's Spirit. So as the Spirit arrives, God is continuing to fulfill the promise of establishing a new work, preparing these people who are now empowered to go out. And Jesus has said things before like, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Right? And so he's empowering them to go and be harvest workers in what is happening. And so the church is born in this moment, would be my argument, as God identifies his people with those who have his spirit. There are different definitions of the church, and if you're in our community groups going through the curriculum, I'm going to give you a little test. Like try, like, try to define the church. It becomes very difficult to take 15 to 30 words and create a definition of the church. Um, an incredibly slim definition that I have heard is the new covenant people of God. Uh, and part of the new covenant is the spirit, right? The, the people who are established or identified with God by his spirit, which is what we see in Acts chapter 2 in an inviting fashion. So the birth of the church in these four verses. <clears throat> and then we have in the coming verses the beginning, the beginning, not the end, but the beginning of the gospel to the world. Now, it says, and this is great because Jesus has already said to the ends of the earth, and he said that in Matthew 28, he said that in Acts chapter 1, he's expecting this message to go out, but he's essentially jump-starting it, I would say, because the Spirit is coming at a festival in which Jews are supposed to descend upon uh, Jerusalem and recognize this feast. And so he's setting it up at the perfect time when people are supposed to arrive in the city, and there are people in the city from all over as they begin to do this. It's awesome. So now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one, these people who were there, were hearing them speak in his own language. I made this argument a year ago. I'll make it again. This is why Bible translation is such a significant part of gospel ministry that we do. It is why language learning is such an important thing for missionaries to do. It's like you just go and you, some people will spend two, three, four, five, six years learning the language because it is essential for people to understand the truths of Scripture in their language. And so they're going, we're hearing these in our language. We're, what is going on here? Because these Galileans are saying this. Are these not all Galileans? Well, remember what Jesus said to his disciples at his resurrection. Tell them to meet me in Galilee. So I have all of these people who are listening. They were waiting. And they go, aren't these Galileans essentially being like, they're not going to know our language. Right? They're not going to do this. They're not going to understand who we are. How is it that we hear each of us in his own language? And it lists them all. All of these surrounding nations. Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty things of God. Well, everyone is amazed, but they really take it in two ways. Way number one, what does this mean? Way number two, must be drunk. Those are the, like, they kind of have a decision to make. They split it down the middle. They go, not sure what this means. Other goes, totally know what this means. They're plastered at 9 a.m. Got it because inebriation leads to language learning, but whatever. 
Now this is awesome. Because what is about to happen happens through a man who at a time Jesus needed him most during his life said, I don't know who that guy is. I don't know who he is. Stop talking to me about him. I've never heard of him. I've never been with him. So just, I mean, just think about it. Just less than three months ago, right? 51, 52 days ago. There's Peter going, no, 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 no. Don't know who this is. Now, this same guy stands with these 11, these other disciples, and he lifts up his voice and he addresses them. What is the most significant thing that has happened in Peter from Jesus' death to now? The Spirit. And Jesus says, the Spirit, the role of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus. To glorify, to highlight, to shine light upon, to make evident, to make seen. So the Spirit exists to make Jesus known. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit, in in saving us, the Spirit is, is pointing us to Jesus. That's the Spirit's ministry in regard to how we operate. Highlight who Jesus is, teach us what Jesus has said, make that clear. And so here we go, Peter, with the Spirit, with the Spirit, is about to connect some dots. And so Peter interprets what is going on, and he'll summarize this at the end in verse 36, but it's essentially this. Jesus is Lord and Christ. Something at Jesus' death at Passover, he wouldn't have gone anywhere near. He would not have been comfortable saying. Here he is, on Pentecost, in front of thousands, saying, Jesus is Lord and Christ. And he's going to explain that in a couple of ways. He quotes Joel and he quotes Psalms twice to make this argument about who Jesus is. And if you have been with us in our reading plan, you're going to start seeing some themes that have gone on. And now with the Spirit, how Peter is connecting these dots. So first, he says something about the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And he quotes from Joel chapter 2. And what he is doing here is declaring this is something God said would happen. The first thing he's saying, God already said this would happen, so you shouldn't be confused even though you are. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. There's thing number one. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Not only that, but sons, daughters, prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men will dream dreams, on the male servants and female servants, in those days... I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. They shall declare. And what are they doing in this moment? They're declaring what God has done. Now we get into verse 19, 20, and 21. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And now we're like, okay, well, that seems bizarre because it's not happening currently in Acts chapter 2. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Then it goes back to a statement where like, okay, I can understand verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Got it. Okay, so understand kind of the first couple of verses. 
get a little confused about the next couple of verses, understand the last verse. But you have to understand how Peter's thinking. The coming of the Spirit is a sure sign that the end is coming. It's a sure sign that God is moving things toward his end. And so Peter's grabbing Joel to go, the fact that the Spirit is here is something that God said would happen. It's going to happen. We're going to see it. We're going to know. But not only that, because it's going to happen, and we've talked about already, not yet, we've kind of talked about that idea of going, some things have happened already, but not everything has happened. And so Peter starts to go, so in the last days, there's going to be judgment. In that language, it sounds rather ominous about blood and fire, vapor of smoke, and moon to blood, is moving towards judgment themes. And so he's saying, hey, spirit has come, which he said would come. Because the spirit's coming, we know the judgment is coming even though we haven't seen it, but you should call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. You will escape judgment. So that's essentially with Joel how he's trying to help them understand. God said this would happen. Because this has happened, judgment's happening. And so that we can follow this all the way through, just know that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. You will be taken care of. You will be covered. Now how does that happen? Well, he has to go back a bit, right? Because it's not just about the Spirit. He has to go back to the work of Jesus. And so this is what he's going to do in his next two proofs from the Psalms. He talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And now David even spoke of this. But David, because, because David's dead, clearly he wasn't the one that wasn't going to see decay. So this is what he says. 22, to try and make sense of the fact the Spirit came. Hear these words that Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by, uh, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs... God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, haven't we seen, week after week this year, like God is moving something? And we quote Isaiah 53, and we see that, and we see Jesus crucified, like God is marching this forward. And so Peter's like, this, this, is, this is what God said would happen. That's what he's trying to say. This is, this is what God has promised. This is what God is ensuring so that we can have life. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, by death. So now he quotes from David, Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption corruption you have made it known to me the path of life you will make me full of gladness with your presence now what Peter's going to do is he's going to take David's words and go clearly this didn't happen to David because David's dead it must, have, must be talking about someone else because David saw corruption he saw decay his body's broken down he makes I think which is a rather logical argument brothers I say I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David and his tomb is with us today. He's buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Dude's dead over there in the corner. There he is. Thus, he was a prophet knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. Remember the Davidic covenant. God is promising there's going to be this king. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
this Jesus God raised up. So he's connecting it. So, so because David spoke about things that didn't happen and David was promised a descendant, he was going past this as a prophet to a day when one of his descendants wouldn't see corruption. Well, God rose Jesus up. And we witnessed it. So he was exalted to the right hand of God, received from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So because Jesus rose and is alive, this moment in, on Pentecost was able to happen. David did not ascend into heaven as Jesus did. And Jesus has used language like this before. We see this in the Gospels. The Lord said to my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. You notice where David is kind of positioning himself in that argument as beneath these, these characters. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make the enemies a footstool. So this is what he says then. Because someone rose, because someone didn't see decay, because someone sent the spirit that is fulfilling Joel 2, and because someone is sitting and established at the, uh, at the right hand until a day when the enemies become his footstool, let all the house of Israel know, and this is his conclusion, that Jesus or that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That he has power as Lord, Christ as Messiah. His name is not first name Jesus, last name Christ, right? Like, he's not, like that wasn't his last name. Christ is Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, we are declaring that he is Messiah. When we talk about him as the Christ, we are saying he is the Savior. And so Peter summarizes and goes, hey, listen, Jesus is Lord and Christ. And he just connects it. Look at what happens in Joel. What you're seeing was promised. Look at what happened in the Psalms. What David was saying didn't happen to David, couldn't have happened to David, because David is dead. There's one who isn't dead. It is Jesus. He is the one the, about which the prophets spoke. He is the one who is empowering us in this moment by his spirit. He is the one who is Lord and Christ. Now go back to what he said, I quote at the end of Joel. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter essentially brings it full circle here. Because the crowd has a response, which is the right response, I would say. When they heard this message, they're cut to the heart. Why? Well, you have to think, this, this revelation was to Jews. Jews who were living in Jerusalem at the time were probably devout. They knew the scriptures, but now the dots had been connected in ways that they had not seen before. The Spirit is doing a work. The Spirit is illuminating their hearts to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how Jesus is the fulfillment of the things in which they have been looking for. And so, when the crowd hears it, they're cut to the heart, and they go to Peter and the apostles, and they say, what do we do? What do we do? Peter responds, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Sometimes, you know, we, we at Genesis, and we would hope you would agree as well, we believe in salvation by grace through faith. And so when people read the word repent, 
there is that thought. Remember that thought of works, like, well, how many things do I need to repent of or how many things do I need to forsake so that I know that God is really for me? Now, remember, though, repentance, the idea of repentance is a turning, right? It's a turning from one thing to another. So I think the argument here is I need you to turn from how you viewed who God was to how you now have been revealed God is. Turn from what you have thought to who God is and be baptized and that you identify now with him, which is what, what Jesus said was going to happen in the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And so Peter is just declaring to them that first part. There's the proclamation of the message that leads to a change of heart, a change of mind, and then the identification with Jesus as Messiah through baptism. So Peter is not here preaching, uh, you must do a certain number of works in order to have God love you in order to have God be for you. He's going, turn, turn. Now, often with a turning, isn't there a forsaking? Right? Like, there is a forsaking in turning. You're giving up something. But it's not as if you're like, well, I must, you know, all these things, because who has given up every sin they've ever committed at the time that they turned to the Lord? Zero. Zero. Because the longer you walk with the Lord, the more knowledge you have of how sinful you actually are. Like, you're kind of like, I wish I had, the, like, my eight-year-old knowledge of my sins. I had, like, two. I'd yell, and I'd, you know, sometimes disobey my parents. That was it. You know, decades later, you're just like, oh, my gosh, I'm a wreck. Always, all the time. So the response, go back to the response. They're cut to the heart. Peter says, repent and be baptized, and that's what they do. They identify themselves with the finished work of Jesus for them. And about 3,000 people do that. A few things I think of when I think of this passage and this idea. I first want to speak to the believer in the room who has the Holy Spirit that he has given to you upon profession of faith, confidence in him. I was going, last night even, I couldn't, I couldn't finish this sermon, and last night I was going, how, how do I make this make sense if I can't? And the only word that kept coming to me was just rejoice. God did it. God did it. He called you. He saved you. He sent his son. He filled you. And because of that, and we're seeing time and time again, us not holding up our end, God holding up his end, the very fact that he does that time and time again means that whatever's going to come tomorrow or next week or the week after or the week after or 20 or 30 or 40 or 100 years from now, we're good. We're good. We can rejoice that we have God, that he has found us and he has saved us. And so if you just left glad, I'm in, Right? I'm glad. But I also say this, relax. Right? Because sometimes we walk through the Christian life thinking that God's kind of over our shoulder with a little checklist going, mm, mm, I'm a bad baseball dad. My kids are in baseball right now. And I have, I have this way I look at them, like after every you know, at-bat or every throw or whatever else, right? Like we make eye contact. 
And I'm just like, what am I communicating to my kids right now? That if there's a mistake, look at dad and he will look at you condescendingly. But like that's sometimes how we view the Lord. Like, oh gosh, was God looking? Like, I don't, I don't want him to be looking. <clears throat> and all there is in this moment is people turning to the Lord and being glad. That's what they have. They're found in him, so relax. If you have God's spirit, you have God's favor. You don't, you don't lose it. You don't lose it, it doesn't drop. You don't need to watch it like you watch your stocks. Oh, down today, up today, you know, like, like, it's not how it works. You have it always. For the one in the room this morning who doesn't know the Lord, I would say this. Trust him. I've said this before, I say it a lot. Every person has to, will, contend with the truth of Jesus as Lord. Jesus as Messiah. I am waiting for the better argument. I'm waiting for the better argument of how is all of this true? How did all of this happen? How does all of this make sense? How does all of this point to this event, to this person, and to this moment? What often keeps us from a full-on embrace of the Lord is our own pride and arrogance and thinking that we know better. Rather than a surrender to Him. That when we're cut to the heart, we try as hard as we can to resist to say, no, I don't want that. And we try to run, like Jonah, and God finds us again. So I would just encourage you, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, turn to him. Trust in him. Believe in him. For he is good. He is good. And this mission that he has called us all into, all believers into, is empowered and moved along by the spirit that he has given to us. So he supplies both the mission and the resources necessary in his spirit and in us, one another, to cheer one another on as we continue to make Jesus known in a world that needs to know him and turn to him and trust him and love him and follow after him. And so I'm grateful. Rejoice that you are the Lord's. Turn to him if you are not and trust him because everything that we're seeing Pointing, 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 pointing to the finished and perfect work of Jesus for us. Listen to that last verse, or that verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls. Call on him. Trust him. Follow him. There is nothing better.